morning, Sharon Balcoholic. Oh, it's still way too early for me, but I'm, uh, thank you, Al. You don't have to pour it, honey. I drink out of the bottle. (laughs) And who needs the lid, right? It says it all. I, I sometimes embarrass the people I'm with. I, I, I've been known to go places and drink the whole pitcher of water right out of the pitcher just to, just to see if I still have it. So, <laughs> Thirsty girl, thirsty girl, always a thirsty girl. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a, a, a guy I met here last night who grew up a mile away from me, and we knew a lot of the same people. It was the people taking drugs and drinking, but um, in the small town, we didn't know the pillars of the community, but we knew these other people. So it's very funny. Um, It's great to be here. Thanks, Al. Thanks uh, for being enthusiastic and a full room and a lot of energy. And thank you, Debbie, for uh, all your little treats. And um, thank you for being part of the Force for Good. I appreciate that. And the girls that uh, she brought with her. And I have lots of other friends in the room. And um, and I have my sponsors here and people I sponsor, so it feels real good. It makes me feel safe. Um, you know, I like that when we say the Lord's Prayer and you hang on at the end and you just uh, feel like a link in the chain. And my job is to be a shiny link. My job is to worry about my link. My job is to keep my part strong. That's all I can work on. And, uh, you know, hopefully somewhere along the line, you know, we touch each other's lives in a positive way because, uh, you know, you don't have to go out there and look for anything negative and the world is there, you know. So I try to look for the positive and I appreciated that in your talk this morning. And and my life is good today. I'm, um, you know, I'm an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous with uh, 30 years, two months and uh, 10, 21 days. And I always got to keep track of that because there's a lady in our home group and I have eight more days than her and I don't let her forget that. <laughs> I've always had eight more days than her and I hope I always do a day at a time. And, you know, the beauty of that is, is that last night I talked a little bit in my workshop about peer pressure and she gave me peer pressure when I was growing up in We're both in the same home group, have been for all these years, and she came in eight days after me, stole my thunder, like I had a lot, you know. (laughs) I was the mope with the wire jaw that the sponsors were teaching their babies within their first year of sobriety how to work with a newcomer, so I kind of had second generation love going there. And she came in and got everybody's love right away. It seemed like all the old-timers wanted to be with her, all the women that I was looking up at, hoping they'd speak to me, and... You know, they were working with Pat, and Pat was whizzed through the steps, whiz kid, class of 75 whiz kid. She whizzed through the steps and into her men's, you know, meditating and doing, and I'm not even, she knew I hadn't even started my fourth step yet. So every time they would read Chapter 5, anywhere in a large room of people, small room of people, at my meeting, she would turn around and look at me and go, done mine, no, you haven't done yours. Um, <laughs> eight days. Not quantity, it's about quality, you know? <laughs> so I, you know, shoot her a, lur- a look and maybe a one-fingered wave once in a while. To kind of scratch my nose. And, uh, and I think, you know, there were times in my first year, oh, I'm going to drink, I, 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 they don't understand, and then I think, oh, then I'll have less time than Pat. <laughs> and I just couldn't fathom that. Pat kept me here, and... And I finally, finally did my inventory that week before my first birthday because it seemed like in my group you had to do that fifth step or they weren't going to give you a birthday cake. Um, 
You guys call it anniversaries. We call it birthdays. And so I did it finally. I mean, under much duress and much, a lot of anxiety attacks and 1,000-pound pencil and, oh, hardest thing I had ever done, ever done. And I, I, I waited for that night because I had done that fifth step with my sponsor. I waited for her to turn around so I could sneer at her or something. And, and she turned around and gave me the biggest smile, like a real smile, because someone had told her and she, she was happy for me. And it was, you know, I kind of found a smile stealing across my face back to her. But, you know, it was, um, it was a nice moment. And, you know, the beauty of it is, is that every August I still get to have my birthday cake first. You know, that's the beauty of it. <laughs> We're both still here, you know. Anyway, Alcoholics Anonymous is my life from which I spring into the world, from which I spring into my day. Uh, I take it with me. I always like to remember I am, I, I am a pickle, not a cucumber. I never will get back to that cucumber state. Um, I am an alcoholic, whether you're watching or not, whether I'm 35,000 feet up or way out in the ocean, whether I'm alone with you, with my family, you know, with clergy or whatever. I am an alcoholic, and I can't forget that I'm bodily and mentally different. So I come back and sit with you to remember that. The phone rings to remember that. I make the calls to remember that. You know, I have a God that is in my pocket with me all the time now that helps me remember that. So, you know, if you're new, I hope you know that hopefully you're, you know, hopefully you're not feeling very good right now. And that's okay. That's a great place to start from. I mean, I wish that for you. And I hope you know if you're an alcoholic, you don't get to go back to being a cucumber. You have now become pickled. And that's a beautiful thing to know. And I hope also if you're new, because I know I have your attention for about two more seconds, and then you go back to thinking about your favorite subject, which is you. <laughs> Just for a second. Make your feet your friend. Don't think. Just uh, My sponsor made me put my mind in the trunk of a car for a year. Literally. I couldn't think. So don't listen to your head. It has way too many good ideas, uh, which someday maybe we'll write a book about newcomer ideas. Uh, very entertaining. And uh, ask a newcomer their grand ideas once in a while. It's very entertaining. And but what I want you to do is look at your feet. I want you to know your feet will get you to AA. Your feet will get you to your sponsor's house. Your feet will walk by the liquor store. Your feet will get you to where you need to go but your mind will tell you a lot of other things. Because alcoholism centers in the mind, and if you came in like me, I had a very sick mind. I had a very busy, active, sick, morbid, dark, d desperate victim mind. And uh, it wasn't really on my side, even though it would wait for me to wake up in the morning and tell me it was, but it really never was. So my feet would get me out of bed, my feet would get me to work, my feet would get me to the meeting that night. And I still love my feet. I pedicure them, I manicure them, I take beautiful care of my feet. They are my friend. I love my feet. <laughs> my mind still sometimes is not my friend, and that's okay. <laughs> I thank it for sharing and send it to the back of the bus without any sandwiches. <laughs> Don't feed it. It's always back there to crawl back in with just to see, let it beat me up a little bit more. Yeah, it's still there. But I like to ride in the front of the bus with uh, the active members of Alcoholics Anonymous where the view is great, the, the, you know, and we're all in this together and everybody's got great ideas. And uh, I love alcoholics because I'm one of you. I, I, on August 20th, 1975, I woke up a drinker and I went to sleep that night 
actual sleep a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happens that we get that, that, that moment, that, that special moment I got in my life where something happened where the next breadcrumb led to the next breadcrumb, which led to the next breadcrumb, and the beauty of it was, was I was so surrendered and so tired I picked up the breadcrumb. And I, and I called somebody I didn't know, and I called somebody else I didn't know, and I sat on the steps of a liquor store waiting for people I didn't know to go to somewhere I didn't know where I was going. And that was my day to be led to you to get a, a second chance at life. And I don't know a lot of alcoholics uh, that get a second chance at life except the ones that are in here. There's a whole bunch of us still out there, a whole bunch of us. Um, I, I love growing up in, in Alcoholics Anonymous in the 70s, and I know with this, this group of people here that are speaking this weekend, except for this morning's speaker, because I have a little more time than him, too, I think about. <laughs> Is, I think it's about 18 days, isn't it? Right? <laughs> As my sponsor would say, coffee with cream, please. <laughs> He's going to get me for that. He'll probably make me go get his coffee after this meeting. But, you know, Friday night, you know, Tom and Clancy tonight and Sandy tomorrow, they, they'll have a, a lot more time than me. And uh, Casey this afternoon, they'll have more time than him, too. So that's good. That's a good thing. But, you know, I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous where we had 12-step calls in 1975. I think central office would call me, and I would show up and go out places and sit at the you know, side of a bed with a woman with new black eyes and a guy passed out next to her at some seedy motel. I lived near the airport, so I got all the seedy motel calls, which were great. And, you know, and I'm on fire, and I'm bringing pamphlets and books and dragging them to meetings, and half the time they were drunk and disruptive, and the old-timers would have to teach me how to, you know, keep them in check. And sit. you sit really next to them, shoulder to shoulder, so they can't move. And if they start to act up, you just kind of squeeze from both sides. You know, I learned that. <laughs> It's very, very good things to learn about a 12-step call. And, and you take them back, and you give them your phone numbers, and you sit with them, and then they, they never call again. They're ungrateful, and they never call again. And, <laughs> but it kept me sober, and I'm so glad that, that I've had those experiences. You stop your car because they're, they're getting sick, and they either get out and they get sick, and you get back in and you go. And, and a lot of those people, I don't know if they ever made it. I don't, you know, I don't know. But um, I know there's a whole bunch of people in this room that have had that day, that moment, and that... Deep in their heart, deep in their gut, deep to their toes, they know that they are an alcoholic, and they know that Alcoholics Anonymous works for people like us. And that's the gift right there, that just knowing that we live in a time and a frame and a space of life where Alcoholics Anonymous is at the next phone call. I, um, you know, you, you can't go anywhere in the world, now, almost, where you can't find another member of Alcoholics Anonymous that is willing to sit down and read Chapter 5 with you, even if it's just two of you. Um, you know, Lewis was talking about being in France, and, you know, uh, Casey and I had the wonderful experience of going to Iceland in February, um, <laughs> but it was great because the people were warm, um, and we did this, this afternoon little workshop thing, and this one lady who spoke, I mean, a lot of them didn't speak English, so there was a little translator, and the questions were, some of them were written in, in Old Norse, and then they had a translator ask the questions, and, and this one lady at the end who she said, I, didn't, I don't speak English, I didn't understand anything you said, but I saw the respect and the love that the two of you have for Alcoholics Anonymous. And that translated, that from the heart translated. And that's what we do. This is a language of the heart and a language of action. 
I show up and do what I'm supposed to do because I've been taught that. And I hope if you're new, you get a sponsor that doesn't care about your feelings. I hope you're new if you get a sponsor that is active and ahead of you. And as Debbie said, that, you know, she's trying to keep up with me and I'm trying to keep up with my sponsor who's busier and more active than me. I need that. I need that to see that down the road of this life sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, the torch is held high and the light is still going and the fire is still burning and they're not sitting around doing time. They are enjoying and loving and alive with this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and they're living it. And that's what I want because I am still a seeker. I love learning and growing and, and finding out new things. Um, I... Um, you know, the second edition big book, I got sober with that book, and we were, uh, I don't know, I was into some self-obsession of something, and my sponsor said, go and read page 449. So I would go home and read page 449 in the second edition, and it was called Joe's Woes. Well, I think I am too stupid to get what my sponsor is telling me because she's trying to tell me to get to the acceptance story in the back of the book, that page. Well, I have the second edition, and I don't realize she's reading out of the third edition. So I, I don't ask questions, because I think if I tell her I don't know what she wants me to find, then she'll say, you got to leave. You're too stupid for AA. <laughs> so for years, I would read, occasionally, in the dark of night, go in the bathroom, read page 449. Joe's woes, it's in here somewhere. I'm not getting that. <laughs> Too stupid for AA. I'm not going to ask her one of these days. I'll see what she's talking about. And then somebody gave me the third edition big book, and I just happened to, oh. <laughs> it's about acceptance. Oh, gee. <laughs> so I realized, you know, I kind of laughed to myself and eventually told on myself, but um, that no question is too stupid in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I hope I stay teachable. I hope I don't expect myself to know all the answers. I hope if I don't understand what you're saying, I say, explain it to me. Uh, explain it to me. You know, I, I really love what we have because you're my people. I sat in those little uh, corn fields in Iowa and those soybean fields looking for the mothership. I was a little girl who was obsessed with Gandhi and looking for the mothership. And, uh, you know, my family looked at me like, you are odd. You know, you are different because <laughs> I am the only alcoholic. I am the one that went to Swisher Dancemore Ballroom when I was 15 years old because I had already discovered alcohol and I knew those boys from Iowa City were drinking. I had heard those boys from Iowa City had it. So I would get up there close when we danced to the Righteous Brothers and I would, you know, that V-neck sweater and that smell of English leather or Jade East or whatever they were wearing. And, and I danced close to the boys and I, I want to catch that whiff of bourbon. Because if, <laughs> if it wasn't there underneath that you know, cologne smell, I'm moving to the next partner because I'm finding who's got the bourbon in their car. And I was good at finding my alcohol. I found my alcohol. I allowed it to, I allowed it to become God in my life. I, you know, my favorite two movies growing up were The Song of Bernadette, The Burning Bush, and um, The Lost Weekend with Ray Milland, The Alcoholic. Those are my two, you know, a little diversity there. And so I should have said something, but, it, you know, it didn't. I, I loved alcohol. I was the young citizen of America in the White House with all the Lucy Bird, Linda Bird, Lady Bird having tea drunk with the boys from Virginia I'd met. And I'm on my one leg trying not to fall over my other little patent leather shoe as I'm going through the reception line, thinking, writing in my journal that I've got to watch my drinking, and I'm 16 years old. 
And, uh, you know, a few years later, it was the 60s and late 60s, and it wasn't just say no, it was just say thanks. We had a lot of fun. We drank a lot. <laughs> found truth a lot. Um, it always melted before I could write it down, though. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was going to the White House, but I wasn't going to be invited for tea. Uh, they wouldn't let me near the White House now because I was pissed off and angry and protesting. and It was just a nice platform for me. I am now had a broken heart. My father doesn't understand me. I fought with a, that Catholic God in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, at the American Martyrs Church. I got in a big fight in the confessional with the priest. And I was just telling him the truth. That's all. <laughs> he didn't care for it. He started screaming at me. I started screaming at him. And we came out of the confessional. And I shook my fist, and I remember, I remember walking, it was, a, like a, it was in a basement, I remember walking up that ramp, shaking my fist at that priest, thinking, you can have your God and shove it. You, know, you leave it right here, and that's the way I, I didn't want God. And I started to not need people. And uh, alcoholism allows you to isolate. I mean, I was out there with people. I, you know, after a couple of years of college, my dad and I had another big fight. I ended up in New York City, and I take my geographics. And I was with people all the way through my drinking. But I always felt alone. I always felt you didn't understand. I always knew that I had to get over on you before you get over on me. I drank in bars where you didn't talk about your feelings. Nobody talked about their feelings, nor did we show weaknesses, nor did we ever surrender. That was something that you just didn't do. And the more I drank and the more it made me tough and hard, the more I was, would seek out those kind of companions. And at the end of my drinking, my New Orleans alcoholics didn't want to even drink with me anymore. My French Quarter rats, the, the, the low-down rats we called ourselves, they didn't even want to drink with me anymore because I was too depressive, too maudlin, too sick, didn't know how I was going to act, what kind of trouble I was going to cause. They didn't even want to drink with me anymore. Um, I was just a little further ahead than some of them down the disease path of alcoholism. And, um, you know, this morning I woke up and, well, I don't know, these pillows in this room are like really rubber or something, and um, so I slept like half up all night long, and I woke up and my hair was kind of like in this, I don't know, beehive or something, it made it all, <laughs> and Casey looked at me and he said, ah, getting your hair caught in the ceiling fan again, huh, you know, <laughs> should never share that part of my story with him, but um, it was a good night, and it did get caught, and had a few, a few chunks out, and it was my favorite bar, and I got 86, and it wasn't because I broke the ceiling fan from dancing on the bar. It was because I got kind of swung around as I got caught in the fan, and I, I landed near the bar and broke some of the bottles, so the owner was mad at me. I broke his alcohol. That's why I got 86 from the Bastille. Now, nobody gets 86 from the Bastille. I did. And I was a little girl with promise. I had a lot of promise. You know, I mean, my dad, I've got these three other successful siblings, and my father was the patriarch and a good man, and my mother was a school teacher, and uh, she helped my dad build this business. And we had family, and we had tradition, and we had good stuff. And, you know, I didn't want any of that. I, I, the call of the wild, it was just, I've got it, it's over here, it's in the next city, it's in the next state, it's with that next person. And, um, you know, I had no base from which to spring into life. I was a lost soul, more isolated and um, more angry. Angry. I didn't know I was so angry. And, you know, the anger took, turned into victimhood. You know? And when you're a victim, you don't have to feel guilty. I was so sick of guilt. 
You know, you finally become the victim, you don't have to feel guilty. It was really a good place to be. And, you know, I was always seeking truth, and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and a speaker named Norm Alpey told me the truth. He said the reason the grass was greener is because the other guy took care of his lawn. <laughs> okay. And then he seemed to look right at me. I don't know why, but he said, and newcomer. <laughs> We know what you're made of. So if you have a lot of fertilizer, we're going to make a great lawn. And uh, so that's what I've been doing all these years, you know, is digging the fertilizer under and planting my lawn, which is not barren anymore. It's full of life and love and light and growth and pain and happiness and, and spirit. And, you know, but I, I, I just kept looking. You know, I met Bob Dylan and came to California for the first time. And and danced with the Krishnas when I was 21, and they wanted me, you know. And I'd been to the Holy Rollers, and they wanted me. I'd been to the Jesus Freaks in Laguna, and they wanted me, because I had this brown aura. Um, and just, they would always see, oh, she needs us, you know. And people had a light, and they had something about them. But as soon as they wanted eternity or forever, I'd have to pick up my backpack with my book in it called Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das. Be here now. I don't do eternity. I don't do forever. And I'd have to leave. And so when it came to you and you said it was a day at a time, I always waited for the other shoe to drop. Forever. You know? A day at a time, the rest of your life. A day at a time, for eternity. And everybody said, no, it's just a day at a time. Kept waiting, and nobody did. Because I lived a day at a time. I lived a moment at a time. If I met you at 10 o'clock at night, and I'm tending bar in the French Quarter, and I'm having a great time, I'm drinking my Jose Cuervo, I'm playing B5 over and over again for the good times, for the good times, for the good times. And you come in at 10 at night, and I get off at 2 in the morning, and you say, come on, we're going to go party. We know there's a lot going on at Funky Butts, and then we're going to go to the dungeon. You know, and then we're going to go hit Esplanade, take all our clothes off and stand on the balcony and drink champagne as everybody's driving to work in the morning and wave at them. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, that sounded like a good time, right? But I would tell you at 10 at night, I don't know how I'm going to feel at 2 in the morning come back. You know, I couldn't even make a commitment for four hours down the road. I lived by the moment, and alcohol allowed me to do that. I loved alcohol. It was magical. It made me not need much, really. And that's kind of what happened to me. And living in the French Quarter, my mom and dad came to visit. They were in Texas, and they thought they'd find out that the daughter's still alive, so they came over to find me. Mm. I have a new black eye. I have my platinum blonde wig on. <laughs> my fishnet, my little outfit with the zippers. I was dancing for Chris Owens at the time. Um, we had a pet skunk. I was living with... Um, <laughs> skunk man. Um, <laughs> for two years, we hated each other, but we couldn't leave. We were, we were all we had. And um, we'd been busted and thrown in jail in Bogalusa together because the carnival, it's a long story. But anyway, um, an old carny worker like me, and I had a dog, and we had a pet snake, and uh, Dad and Mom knock at the door. We're living above the Mousetrap bar, bar, seedy little sorry bar on Lower St. Peter Street. And it's a tar paper roof apartment, and it's sad and sorry, and nobody did dishes, nobody really ate. I mean, I remember the red beans being in a pot, and if you lifted it up, the lid was alive. You know, you didn't even want to look at it. Just throw it in the trash. And, you know, the skunk droppings were everywhere, and the snake was loose, and... Um, and I introduced, you know, my dad and mom to the love of my life. <laughs> Just gave me my new black eye. And 
He was a heroin addict. I never, I, people face down going, let's party. I just never understood them, you know. I, I was up and moving and going and didn't want to miss a thing. And if there was something to help me not miss anything so I could drink longer, that's where I was. So we just, we never even got along in that phase of life. So he put the snake in my dad's face, and my dad went and stood by the, the side of the door and outside and set his jaws. He did, and we don't lock eyes. And the last time I'd seen my dad before that, he was sitting in a lawyer's office in Bogalusa, Louisiana, where they brought me in in handcuffs and mess so that, that he could try to get his daughter out of this jackpot she was in. So, you know, sales and possession and um, felony in Bogalusa. And uh, my dad hired this lawyer and did what he could, and... That was the last time I saw my dad. Now, here he is seeing me in this condition, and they don't know alcoholism. They just think, you know, my mom used to think, Sharon's just writing this great book because that's what I would tell her, you know. And, but she wasn't buying it anymore. Um, and my mother, I remember the tears running down her face as she's trying to talk to me. And uh, I go down, they leave, they go back to Iowa. I'm glad they're gone. I go back to the mousetrap downstairs I lived above, and I ordered my Jose Cuervo nice and neat rock glass, no salt, no lime, just... Pour it to the top. Give me another one. Pour it to the top. Give me another one. And alcohol didn't turn out the fire that day. Didn't put it out that day. It didn't let me not care what I saw in my dad's eyes. It didn't let me not care what I saw the, my mother crying. It didn't let me not care. And it was like, come on, let's. we need this to work. Where's B5? Something, you know, and it wasn't working for me. And all I really wanted to do that day was to run down the, the road after them and go, let me go home and have another shot. Let me have another chance. Um, I knew it wouldn't change. I had had another shot. I had had another chance. I had already broken their hearts and broken their bank and broken it all and just let them go. And that day I was, I really became not a part of that family anymore. And um, so let's just, let's just drink and move on, you know. And occasionally I would move to St. Louis or move to Florida or go somewhere else, but I always kind of based myself back in the French Quarter because I could pass out between a car and a curb and somebody would find me and I would end up back half in and half out my door, sometimes in my house. Um, if I had no place to live, I would sleep on someone's couch for a while. We took care of each other, and, you know, that's just the way it was. Uh, my friend Michael was shot and killed on Mardi Gras Day, and um, he had a gun. He was a bouncer at Pat O'Brien's. I don't know why he decided to shoot at people off my balcony, but he did. We were drinking and partying all night long and uh, not sleeping and having another party, and I guess I had gone out to get some more alcohol, come back, and... And everybody said, you know, what he had done. And so I guess I asked him to leave, and I don't remember that. And the next thing I heard were some shots, and my friend Michael was dead. And I didn't know if I had anything to do with that, because I'm in a blackout. I'm in and out. I'm in a brownout. I don't really remember much about that. And I remember, you know, the police came, and they took me. I was interrogated by homicide, and, and I was so drunk and loaded, and they would come in, and they couldn't talk to me, and I was stuttering, and I needed something to drink, and nobody would give me a drink, and... And the Mardi Gras floats were going, I could see them. I was like up on the third floor, I could see them going down on the street a couple of blocks away. And, and they'd come in and they'd say things about me and they would call me names and walk out of the room. And then finally a friend of mine who was on the force said, you just, you know, we're going to drop any charges and you're going to leave town. Just leave town for a while. And I did. I left town for a while. In 1975, the end of my drinking, I ran a lot. I ran a lot. I became unemployable. I was over 170 pounds. I had a red dashiki and a Panama hat. And um, I ended up in Southern California, and I had to prepare myself because they closed the bars at 2. I didn't know they closed the bars at 2. It was frightening that they closed the bars at 2. 
So, uh, and then I ended up sleeping on this girl's floor where I crawled across the floor one night past Cal Worthington. The TV was on the floor. She was moving out. Every time I'd come to, there would be more furniture gone. It was like this zone. I didn't know where I was, but I would crawl across the floor and I would sneak out because I would hide between the dumpsters to get to that liquor store because they're going to get me. And uh, I lived like that for a little while in this, this apartment that had no furniture eventually. And she was packing her books, and I crawled across the floor, and I found this book. And I liked the cover. I don't remember anything about it, but it was the Came to Believe book. It had a little, uh, little, uh, little green plant growing through the snow. And I think I opened it, read something, and passed out on it. You know? But this girl was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her name was Chris, and she was going to be my Eskimo to you. Little did I know that school that was being nice to me and tried to help me get a job where they asked me to leave after 10 minutes because my brain wouldn't work anymore. I couldn't remember where the drinks went. I stood in the middle of the dance floor with this tray of drinks, and the owner came over and said, we'll pay you for it tonight, but please don't come back. And I'm, I, I'm 170-some pounds. I don't fit in anything. I'm bloated. I'm toxic. My gallbladder's gone. I have pancreatitis. I'm 25 years old, and I'm dying of alcoholism. I don't call home anymore because they don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. You know, occasionally I had a sister that would send me an airline ticket and bail me out from where I was, but there was no birthdays or Christmas or Mother's Day. That's all, that's all over. I'm just, I'm just survival drinking. And um, I ended up at Barney's one night at uh, this bar that I love, and uh, these guys asked me if I wanted to go to Palm Springs. They had Harleys, and, you know, I'm a tequila Harley kind of drinker, and that's, let's go. So I put my... Uh, dashikied self on the back of that bike and we went out to Palm Springs and they're driving away, they're leaving me at this nightclub. I said, I thought we were going to party and they said, yeah, we need a little extra weight, thanks for giving it to us. It was windy going through the desert if you didn't notice. So that's what I had become, extra weight. But, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I'm drinking, I'm meeting the bar boys, I'm, I'm getting my free drinks. I don't remember much of that night, but I remember coming to and I'm in a place where they're beating me up. And I had been in those situations, I'm a hitchhiker. You cry your way out, you talk your way out, you buy your way out, your dog bites your way out, you get out of those situations. And something happened to me that night, I just quit screaming. I just thought, I don't care anymore, nobody cares anymore, and I just, like the victim, just stopped screaming. I stopped fighting for my life. And um, that, that was when the ego died, I guess, I don't really know, but there was a part of me that just died, gave up. I don't give up. And I gave up, and I didn't care. Just let it be lights out. And I came to at the bottom of a ravine, my face in the sand, with my jaw broken in three places and um, my nose in a concussion. And, and uh, I was unclothed, and I was pretty badly beaten up because when they finally found me, they thought I was not a Caucasian. I had so many bruises on my body. And um, anyway, a gardener found me because I had found somebody's lawn chair. I had heard a voice that said, get up, I want to live. That wasn't my voice. There was something deep inside. It talks about and deep inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. And maybe that, that morning as the sun was coming up in the desert in July where it should have just baked down in that ravine, I heard a voice that said, get up, I want to live. And it got me up. It got me up. And I'm laying on the gurney and I'm trying to write because the police are there. It's a small town in 75. It's not going to happen in Palm Springs. They're going to try to find these guys. I had a detective assigned to my case. I'm laying on the gurney ready to go into surgery because I had to put my jaw back together. And I'm writing my name and my mother's phone number and some other things. And I see this word, word if that if my broken face could have smiled, it would have smiled because it said victim. I was like, oh, yeah, finally, somebody knows. <laughs> it was validation. 
Um, and I was in the hospital for two weeks, and nobody sent me an airline ticket, blessedly. Nobody came and said, I, you know, let's go start over in Phoenix. I know you like Phoenix because it's drive, drive through liquor stores. It was like, if I could just get to Phoenix, it'll be okay. And um, nobody bailed me out. And the guy that I had known from this bar, Barney's, said that he had heard what had happened to me. He came down and got me as they were letting me out, just kind of let me out. And I uh, stayed with him above a liquor store called the Duck Pond in West L.A. And he would go off to work every morning and buy me some cheap red wine, and I would stick the straw on the top of the wine and stick the straw through the wires in the mouth where the tooth had been, and I would just drink wine all day. I'd just sit there and drink wine. I was so not human. I was just an ember of life ready to go out. I was just done. But I was drinking because he bought me wine. I don't know not to drink. I don't know on August 20th I'm going to call AA and not drink. I'm drinking. And one morning he tapped me on the shoulder, and that was August 20th. And he said, you got to leave, you're depressing me. <laughs> me? So I called my mother, because what do you do? And my mother had gotten a call from the hospital and didn't know what shape I was in until she found me two days later because they forgot to tell her what hospital I was in. So my sister in New York and my mother in Iowa called all the hospitals in Southern California until they found out where I was and that I was going to be okay, two days after they got the initial call. So my mother really didn't sleep for two nights, knowing that her daughter was in the shape she was in, and is she going to be okay, and where is she? And um, I always want to thank you that my mother sleeps at night because of Alcoholics Anonymous. If just for that, I'm overpaid. Thank you. Um, so my mother said no. She wouldn't send me any money. Maybe I should try the Salvation Army. And that was a shock. Um, you know, come on, Mom, 20 bucks. I didn't say that. But I would have sold out that day for a $20 bill, waiting for it to come in the mail. And she said no, and that was the first breadcrumb. And then there was a number there, and her name was Chris, and she was always nice to me, the girl that let me stay in her apartment, dating the guy I was staying with, sitting right there. So I called her, and she said that I should call this other woman named Suzanne. I don't know why, but Suzanne could help me. And Chris recognized alcoholism because she was an in-and-out member of AA. And she knew that Suzanne could help me. Suzanne was a five-year sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I don't know why I called a perfect stranger, but I did. And God bless Chris. She didn't make it. She died at St. John's. We used to have a meeting at St. John's Hospital on Saturday night. And one night they rolled her in. (laughs) She was 31, drooling on herself, didn't know anybody. She had become a wet brain. And... um, But I had to see her and tell her thank you anyway. Um, So uh, this woman, Suzanne, went to work on me right away. I mean, she said, don't drink anything and don't smoke anything either. And I thought, how does she know? (laughs) (laughs) Read my mail instantly. And, you know, she, everybody, I'm I'm wired up. I can't answer her. So, but she got out of me the Duck Pond liquor store, which every alcoholic knew because they sold after hours out the back, they sold an underage kids. Every alcoholic knew where the Duck Pond liquor store was. So it was a blessing I was there because she got out of my Duck Pond liquor store. And so she knew exactly where to send her two newcomers over to pick me up. And I'm sitting there on the steps. I don't know who I'm waiting for. I don't know why I'm there. I, I don't know where I'm going. But two, two women are coming to help me. First of all, two women are coming to help me. That's, that's a breadcrumb I picked up I didn't know I could, you know? And they got out of the car, and they were beautiful, and one was blonde, and one was dark and exotic, and they were clean and pretty, and this Volkswagen was bright yellow, bright yellow. 
And I remember I could hardly look at the car, let alone these bright people. And, but they, you know, everything inside of me is saying, no, 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 I'm not going. No, 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 I'm not going with you guys. No, 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 you won't understand. No, 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 you don't know who I am. And everything inside of me was screaming that, but they just kind of picked me up because I'm tired. I'm tired. And they put me in the back of the car and off we go somewhere. I don't know where we're going, but it seems like they talked a lot about themselves. <laughs> I kept waiting, you know, like, I kept, first three months in AA, I couldn't talk. It was a blessing. I had learned to listen. Um, and believe me, every old timer that had something to say would come up and tell me because I couldn't <laughs> talk back to them. Except I think I did get a few four-letter four words out to a guy named Jack McLean. Clancy <laughs> doing him a crazy guy. Uh, but I managed to spit some four-letter words out to him once. And, um, but that's it, really. I didn't talk for the first three months I was in AA. But it seemed like these women just talked incessantly about themselves. And I had this newspaper clipping in my pocket about this unemployed bartender from the French Quarter who was beaten up and victim of violent crime. Ready to show you. Look at me. And nobody asked. No, they just thought, God, she looks tired. Maybe she'll make it. Look at her. She looks surrendered. Maybe she'll make it. Take your pack off, kids. Stay with us for 30 days. You look tired. Who are these people, and how do they know I'm tired? You know, how do they know that? And, and I don't know where we are. We're at a church. I'm waiting for the forever thing. I'm waiting for the eternity talk. I'm waiting for something, so I'm going to have to get up and show them my book, be here now. I've got to leave. But nobody did that. And a man named Maurice, who was this tall, gangly Jewish guy with long fingers, and he had a long nose, he came over, and I'm sitting at the table, at the end of this table, and I'm feeling a little bit, a little bit claustrophobic. But, you know, I, I really I can't even move. I'm so done. I can hardly move. And he's, like, over-pointing everything at me. His face, his fingers, it's all coming at me. And he's got this book. I think it said Alcoholics Anonymous on it. I'm trying to figure out where I am. But he's talking about, you know, I can pay him when I get a job, and someday I'll get a job, and, and maybe you don't have a car, and maybe someday I'll get a car so you can drive to your job, and, and that, you know, we take payment plans. You can take forever to pay us back. It's a data. I'm starting to almost, like, get sick now. I'm, you know, he's, like, so intense about this book that finally I just took it and gave him my last quarter, and it shut him up. He was, like, so happy to get my first payment plan quarter. You know? <laughs> and Maurice wrote in my book, which was the second edition, August 20th, 1975. And he, he asked me what my name was. And, you know, it was always Cher, because I shared and shared alike, which made my father very happy. Um, but he said, you know, what's your real name? And I told him Sharon. So he wrote Sharon down. And it's in pencil, and it's still in my second edition big book from Maurice. And I paid him back that year, quarter at a time, quarter at a time. He wrote it down. We were so happy we were getting done. And, you know, I got a little resentment because I think when, in 75, the book was like 565, and then it went down to 470. You know, we're, we'll cop a resentment at anything when we want to, you know? I mean, I'm 10 years sober, and they're selling the book for four-something. I'm going, I paid five-something for mine, you know? But in our group, we have something called a watch. You know, it's tradition, and you go watch the person turn one. And I know some of you guys do it, too. And, you know, they don't let you out of the booth. If you go to the bathroom, they watch you. They, you know, you don't go anywhere alone because you're going to hit that midnight. So they're going to watch you turn one. And I remember what I wore that night, where I sat, and who was sitting at my table, and Maurice came in, like right before midnight. And he said, I knew you'd make it, kid, because you're the only newcomer that year that paid me back for that book. <laughs> And 
And I mean, that's the kind of people I was around, the people that wanted me, wanted this ember of life to just flare up a little. We don't know what your gift is, Sharon, but stick around and find out. We don't know what you're all about, Sharon, but we understand you, and you will understand us. Just open your ears a little bit. And the guy at the very first meeting said he always waited for the spaceship to land and say, you can come home now, Bill. (laughs) Oh, he's a spaceship looker, too, just like me, mothership watcher. And that kind of flamed me up just for a second that night. And that was how I started in Alcoholics Anonymous. I slept on women's floors. I had nowhere to go. They moved me out of the liquor store. Me and my paper bag, my big book, my blender. My mother sent me the blender so I could eat because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't eat. I had to go back to Palm Springs the Court. It was a big case. I'd go back there and I'd sit and I'd read the literature. So I'm just kind of sitting in the courtroom. I'm late, and you know, I just and then then somebody came with me, so I didn't have to go alone. I didn't tell anyone I went alone the first time. And then a woman named Susie brought me some clothes, so I'd have something to wear to court other than a dashiki and these torn jeans. And um, you know, and one night I'm like keeping track. You know, Susie gave me some clothes. You know, Fred gave me five dollars. You know, Mike gave me a carton of cigarettes, you know, and, and I had a whole long list, of another ride from Junan, and, and a list of people that were doing nice things for me because I'm going to pay you back, and then I'm gone. I'm going to even the slate, and then I'm gone. I don't want to owe you. I don't want to owe anybody in the world. And uh, a man named Chuck N. walked over one night and saw me ha- hanging out by the wall, writing in my book, something nice somebody had done for me. And, um, you know, he didn't wait for an answer because I still really couldn't talk, and he just took it away, looked at it, and he said, Sharon, one day you're going to have a car, driver's license, registration, insurance, all in the same name. I thought, how does he know that? That's a big order. Someday you're going to have a closet full of clothes. You can fold them up, put them in a cleaning bag, whatever you need to do to give to that new girl who's starting a job. Someday you're going to have a couch where someone can sleep. Pay us back that way. Pass it on. Pass it on. Do not give it back here. Just rip up that list. Someday, Sharon, you're going to have those things, and we trust that you can pass it on. And he gave me some dignity that night. He just handed me back a piece of dignity, which I had left on the bar somewhere in Colorado. I had left my art talent on the bar somewhere in New York. Alcoholism asked for whatever I gave it. A piece of my soul, take it. The rest of my dignity, who needs dignity? I'm on the road. You know, but, but for fun and for free, that man looked at me that night, told me that someday I'm going to have those things and that I would be worthy of giving it back. And it gave me some dignity. And, um, you know, I've, um, I've opened my heart and my life to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's just the way it is because those are the people that taught me. Um, I remember a man named Hank, Hank J., uh, he was uh, an insurance salesman in our group, and um, he found out I finally got this car. Um, it was kind of primer gray Malibu with a seat that was broken, so I would like drive up to meetings low riding, you know. And <laughs> so this crazy sponsor, Janet, we got some old chair and we propped it up so I could see the drive, and um, you know, I got this $24 a week room because the wires came off and I, I ended up waitressing, which I told you about last night. But, you know, I got a phone and my first obscene phone call, it was true. Okay, I'm, I'm home now, you know. <laughs> Somebody had left a teddy bear at the restaurant, so I had a teddy bear. And um, she made me put that pamphlet on my mirror just for today because she would make me do something nice for someone without getting found out. And then when she would trick me into telling her, she'd laugh and say, ha-ha, now I know, you got to go do something else. <laughs> Not a nice lady, sometimes. But 
But so anyway, I got this car, and so this guy, Hank, said, I hear you have a car, and I sell insurance. Can I come over and, well, you know, because you've got to be insured, because in our group, if you don't have insurance or a driver's license, you're not driving. You know, it's like, gee, is this the law around here? But you know what? It's, as my sponsor says, it's to protect him from citizens like me that don't have a driver's license or insurance. So in our group, that's what we do, or you, you park your car until it gets all straightened out. And um, so we came over, and he, I made a pot of coffee in my little coffee maker, and, and I sat there with my waitress uniform getting ready to go to work, and I counted out my tips, and I had cash and change. And Hank sat there on like a little folding chair. I didn't have much insurance. And he had his little book out. And we're writing him up. And I'm paying him for my insurance and having a cup of coffee. And he shook my hand. And I felt like a citizen. I felt like a citizen. I drove off insured. You know, it's like, okay, I can hit somebody now. You know, I was just so afraid. But I still have that insurance today. And every time I call that insurance company, they thank me for my 31 years of service. It's so great. You know, I've never done anything for 31 years. And, you know, and God bless Hank. He's at the big meeting in the sky. But he allowed me to feel more like a citizen that night. And um, that's the way I was treated. I remember I had this friend, Junan. She was, God bless her. She, my last Christmas card came back quite a few years ago, stamped deceased. And she just never made it. But she was... She tried. She just tried. She was one of those incapable of being honest with herself. But she took a liking to me because nobody else did. And um, she was kind of a downtrodden woman. And so we would truck around to meetings, and she'd throw me in her car. And, and one night it was, uh, I think, uh, Pat's turn to sit at the coffee shop and listen to Junan gripe about her sponsor. And so I was sitting there with him at the coffee shop with my, you know, broken jaw and my sad little sorry self. And I couldn't eat anything because, you know, I remember trying to eat some soup and it gets stuck in the straw and I was just like, oh. So I would just sip on coffee at the coffee shop trying to be a part of. And before I realized what was happening, the left side of my mouth had no, it had no feeling. So it was kind of like rolling down there. I'm sorry, the right side of my mouth because toothpaste still every once in a while makes its way down there. And, and it took a long time for me to have some nerve feeling in my face again. But um, I'm feeling uh, really blessed that that morning they drug me into Palm Springs Hospital. There happened to be a very good surgeon on board that took me on as a charity case and made lances on my face where they don't show. Because I've met people who have had what I've had, and they've got scars right there showing on their face. And I guess God he thought I needed all the help I could, so he hid them. <laughs> and um, that's what my second sponsor said. Don't you take credit for any of that, Sharon. And... Um, so anyway, I just—I was at the coffee shop, and it was running down the side of my face. And when I realized there was a puddle beneath me, and I remember Pat looking at Junan and then looking at me with that horrified feeling like, come on, can't you just drink coffee? Do you have to be such a mope at the table? Look at you. Is it my night to watch you? That's what I'm thinking she is going to say. But what she did was she took her napkin, and she dabbed my face. She put it down on the puddle on the table. She gave me a wink and went back to her conversation. And that's the way I was loved. Nobody was judging me. People were caring for me in the ways that they could care for me. And God bless June Ann. She had a commitment, and I had a commitment together at this Wednesday night meeting before we had our big group. We used to have this Echo Park meeting on Wednesday night, and I was after the meeting. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me dry the cups. I had to wash the cups. And uh, this guy named Mike with his tattooed tear and his big bony fingers and his Texas accent made me get a sponsor because he just bugged me. He was the dryer, and he would... Everyone says, you get a sponsor, you're going to get drunk. You better get a sponsor, you're going to get drunk. And I just wanted to shut him up, so I finally got a sponsor. But 
So that was my commitment that meeting. And Junan was cookie girl at that meeting. So we'd go early because I had no choice. And you know, she would drop me off, and so I'd have to stand and listen to you all tell, tell me stories because I couldn't talk yet. But she would go off and get the cookies and then come back, and we would start the meeting. And one night, the meeting's about ready to start, and there's no cookies. It's like, where the, you know, nobody really cares where Junan is. It's where's the cookies. Um, you know, we alcoholics have our priorities. And um, nobody knew. And all of a sudden, the LAPD black and white pulls up to the curb, and the secretary's talking to the cop, and the cop's talking to him. We kind of gather around, what's going on, what's going on? And the cop said, well, you know, this lady named Junan, she went and bought cookies. Um, and then I guess she went back in the store and didn't have any money and stole some candy bars. And they caught her, and they called me. And I got to take her in, and she's in the car, but she made me stop with these cookies for you. <laughs> on the way, on the way to, to being booked, she made him stop to bring the cookies to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Those were my teachers, you know. <laughs> no matter what, your commitment is covered. <laughs> And those were my teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's, I got the basics. I got the, the, the shoot from the hip stuff. I got the, you know, I don't care how you feel. You show up. You punch in that time card. You leave your mind in the trunk of your car. You go out and you be nice in the world. You be a worker among workers. You get it, you know, an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. And, and shut up. Nobody cares about your feelings out in the world. Um, you know, and occasionally I would try it out on someone when they would ask. Um, I still do it today. I work in Century City. We have a very nice market called Gelson's. And I'll go to that market to just maybe meet somebody. And, and I don't know what takes me over. It's a little gremlin or something. But, you know, you hang around the fruit, and there's always somebody trying to find nice fruit. So you're all kind of trying to pick out the fruit. And eventually they'll catch your eye, and they say, hi, how are you? Well, if you proceed to tell them how you are, about how... You know, this woman is exhausting you because all she does is talk about she's got to go to jail and, and you're worried about her and her family. And then you've got this other newcomer who's pregnant and you don't, you know, and they just kind of... And I woke up thinking about death this morning, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> they pick the rottenest thing in their hand and they move away, you know? <laughs> and then if you see them a couple weeks later in the store, they remember you and they move away. And uh, they don't get us, you know. We... we we laugh at funerals and cry at weddings. I mean, we, we're the only ones, and if you ever take a row of alcoholics to a movie, we're the only ones laughing in all the sick parts, and it's like the whole, the whole theater turns around and go, who are those sick people in this theater? Or you go out to eat with a bunch of girls, and you're going to La Jolla, and you're all dressed to the nines, and somebody's speaking, and we're all in a van, and we're having a great time, and we look terrific, and so we're all these good-looking women that give us the center table, and we start telling parts of our story. <laughs> now, and we have a couple that grew up in the loud family, so they're just loud. You know, I always have to say, Teresa, tone it down. You know, we're not at your house where you have to scream for attention, you know? So she's telling a prison tattoo story. And... <laughs> You know, we're, we're in La Jolla, and, um, <laughs> and all of a sudden we realize the whole restaurant's listening to this table. <laughs> oh, I love it. We're so, you know, when you're new, you go out to the coffee shop and the alcoholics, the young ones aren't relating at all. Yeah, well, maybe. I, I wasn't that bad. Didn't do that. You know, and six months later, you go hang around the same table. You think, that's funny. Listen to what I did. You know, it, <laughs> There's something that happens here with the language of the heart and what we do and, and, and our storytelling, so we never forget. I never want to forget that broken ember of life that sat on the, 
steps of that liquor store with her broken shoes and her broken heart and broken life that you pulled me in and you took me and you gave me your best. You didn't water it down. You, didn't, you gave me your best for fun and for free. And all you want for me to do is just keep going to that vein of gold and mining it and giving it away the rest of my life. And that I can do. That I can do because uh, you've taught me well. And uh, because of that, um, you know, I got to make amends. It was a huge thing, huge thing. I told you a little bit about the New Orleans stuff last night and going back there at five years of sobriety and meeting the guy who lived downstairs from me when my friend Michael was shot that day. And he was in AA, and he was introduced to me, and I found out that I had nothing to do with that man getting shot by the policeman. I never knew that until I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, back in the French Quarter, and met some people, and tried to help him and met that guy and he told me the story and uh, I was able to close that circle and let it go and um, some of the women I drank with, there were three of us, we were called the Three Musketeers and we were bad, we, were, we shared everything, almost and um, you know we would start the night out dressed to the nines with hats and southern bells and uh, we would end up, you know, where's my shoes and uh, you know who pick up Robin, she's down by the, you know, she's going to hit her mouth on that bar down there, you know. <laughs> and when I went back to the International, she was drunk as can be, laying on my bed in her cocktail waitress uniform, which I had to button up with the big book passed out. She didn't hear a thing I said. But um, about nine years ago, she called me, and she had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sponsor her today. And um, the other one, Denny, got sober um, about five months later. And she's uh, in our life today. And Clancy was there in Brownwood when we all met again. Or I think it was like it was in Brazos that we all kind of came back together again. And the reunion of the three ex-drunks that were sober sitting around talking about spiritual things. <laughs> How do you get from where we were to where we are, from the darkness to the light? You know, but for the grace of God and just the moment that we were ready to go, okay, I give up and uh, surrender a bit and come in here and sit down and listen like, you know, with the ears of the dying. Listen with the ears of the dying. And Danny went back to law school, got me my pardon from the state of Louisiana, so I'm not a convicted felon uh, for fun and for free. Um, and Robin is dear and in my life, and uh, I get to sponsor her and go through the steps with her. And, you know, that, that was just an amends that came to fruition uh, in a very joyous and beautiful way. And, and making the amends to my family was rough, really, really rough. I didn't even realize that on that trip when my mom and dad came to that, that ratty apartment I lived in with a black eye down in the French Quarter, I didn't even realize that my younger sister and my younger brother were there until like five years ago they were talking about it. And I went, you were there? I don't even remember you being there. And my younger sister said, yeah, that, you know, the jerk you were living with, we went out to get some food or something, and he took me to a girly show, you know, and she just, she said he was such an idiot, he thought it was going to shock me, and I was just like, let's get out of here, you know, she had enough self-worth to go, you're a jerk, let's get out of here. But I was horrified, I didn't even realize that had happened, and, and my younger brother was smaller and younger then, if he would have waited a few more years, he would have uh, pummeled this guy, but he said all I could do is keep my fists in the, my pockets, because he's... This guy was hurting my favorite older sister, and uh, all I wanted to do was hurt him, but I knew that he was bigger than me. And uh, he said, but if I find him now, <laughs> and like I said, I was horrified thinking that they were there and I never knew it. And I'm a blackout drinker, and there's a whole bunch of things I may never know. 
So my job is to get up every morning and just help God's kids get things get done. That's it. I can't take a resume. I can't judge. I can't ask who you are or what you need. I just, if, I, if I'm there and you need it, got to do it. And that's the way I live my life as a living amends to the people, places, and things I never get to say what I need to say to them because I'll never know. And uh, it's a very freeing way to live. My life actually became about love and service. Very simple, very free, very, very, very good, and a lot of work to stay there, a lot of work to stay there. You know, every morning I meditate with my dog and my four cats. Um, all rescued because I killed a few pets out there. I didn't mean to, but <laughs> I had a turtle crawl through my white powder once. <laughs> found him in the middle with a smile on his face, but <laughs> he was a little stiff, and um, you know, with a hangover, I had to go bury that poor turtle with a spoon in Jackson Square, you know, um, and I was always burying my pets in some city park at two in the morning, and um, so, you know, this dog has got a good life, and I rescue my animals in case he has one, and I have the three and the dog, and we meditate in the morning because after meditation, they get fed. <laughs> so they are waiting for me. I got them trained. They sit there on the day bed going, okay, we're ready. Come on. 20 minutes. Come on. We're hungry. We got 20 minutes here. And um, so that's how I have to start my day. You know, I start my day with some quiet time, and then I feed my pets, and I do my job, and I show up, and I answer my phone, and I give them a good day's work for a good day's pay. And, um, and I never forget I'm a pickle no matter where I go. Um, nobody really knows. I did tell the HR director at the law firm I'm at because I thought, well, if I get stuck somewhere or somebody needs a little bit of help because they're alcoholic, because um, that's happened at the last firm, that happened. And she's still sober, and she got her partner sober, so you never know who's watching. So I did think I should, I'm going to go tell the HR lady, because I'm not going to tell my boss, who will think it's wonderful. I'm not going to toot my horn where I'm going this weekend. He'll just say, Monday, how are you? And I'll say, great, I met some new friends, had a great weekend. You know, not 500 new friends, but, you know. <laughs> so I went to tell the HR director, and I closed the door and made it this big kind of, you know, serious thing with, you know, trying to stay kind of quiet about it, but just to let her know. And she got this look on her face. I thought, oh, God, she's going to judge me here. She got this look on her face, and she said, I totally understand. I just gave my daughter a 20-year cake. I go to Al-Anon. And I went, okay, we, I think we told the right person here. And, um, <laughs> but the beauty of that story is she told her daughter, and her daughter used to be in our group, and I used to be her sponsor. <laughs> so I'm glad that I gave her a good foundation, you know. I'm really glad she has 20 years. Great, you know. And so we got back in touch with each other to catch up, which was really nice. But the making those amends to my dad and my mom and, um, you know, my community, I get to do. And especially with my father, especially that was the toughest thing, was going home and showing up in Iowa and showing up there with hat in hand and just shut up and say what you have to say and do it because the sponsor will kill me if I get off that plane and I haven't done it. You know, her voice was louder than my head and she intimidated me. And um, so I told my dad as we were putting the bags in the car to come back to the airport so I could fly back to L.A. after I was in, in Iowa about 10 days. I told my dad what I had to tell him and we were standing by the car. Nobody looked at each other. The earth didn't shake. The angels didn't sing. It wasn't like... Oh, my God, thank God. It was no big thing. It was just, okay, I always wanted you to be happy. We got in the car and went to the airport, and my sponsor said, good, it's a start. She said, you don't forget his birthday. You don't forget Father's Day. You don't forget Christmas. You're on time with the gifts. You remember everybody's uh, special events, and um, you make those living amends. It's a start, and I want you to go home every year. 
want you to go home to Iowa every year and just be of service to your family. So that's what I've been able to do all these years. And, and I got another sponsor at five years. Um, I started to kind of come alive finally. I started to have a feeling with an action. I was so dead inside. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize maybe what I had said until two weeks later or what I should have said. I would wake up in bed and go, God, I should have said that. That was two weeks before. I mean, I wasn't living in the now. I didn't know how to bring my emotions and my life in the moment. I didn't know how to be present. And uh, Jenny had me do things like go wash one cup and call me back. So I really wash that cup. Wash one cup. I don't know what this means. Go clean one table off and call me back. And she taught me how to single thing because I had this racing mind that just was debilitating. It was exhausting, you know. And if I get myself right with the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have so much more energy. And um, but Jenny taught me how to pull it back in. And the night I, I know I hit my husband on the head with a flashlight, and when I picked it up, he wasn't paying attention to me. And um, <laughs> The light bulb went on, I'm angry, as I did the action. It was like, I was so happy, I put it together. He wasn't very happy. And uh, so I called my sponsor, and she said, great, now we can get working on some more stuff. But, um, so Ginny said to me one night, I was having a fight with my husband, and you know, my dad had walked me down the aisle. He'd been here, had met all of you, went to an AA meeting, bought a big book, looked at me at the end of my wedding day, and said, Sharon, look at your life, you got it made. If you think about doing what you're doing before, think twice. Okay, Dad. Approval, finally. But I didn't say that. I said, you're right, Dad. And um, so I, I called home, and I said, Dad, you know, I, I'm making better money now. I was working at this travel agency, and... And um, I want to pay you back the money. Oh, and do you think you can, you know, come up with a figure? And he had it ready for me because he had read the big book. He had run a calculator tape. I thought it was too high. I called my sponsor and whined, and she laughed. She laughed. And, you know, this is a good sponsorship. I was in a corner. I had nowhere to turn, and she wanted one more thing from me. Just one. That's, you know, you're in the You can't move. And, God, isn't it enough? I already did this. Do you want one more thing from me? And it's the beauty of it is, is because the sponsor's been down the road. They know what's down there. You don't know you can have what's down there. They know you can have. And they come back and they share with you, telling you what's down the road. Let's keep going. One more thing. That's right. So I, I did one more thing, and, which was my, not send him the cold, hard cash in an envelope, put a note with it, and tell him about my life. And don't be late because I'm the only example my dad may ever see of Alcoholics Anonymous be a perfect example of Alcoholics Anonymous. Do not be late with that check and that note. And my dad got checks and notes for four and three-quarter years and called me up between Christmas and New Year's, dialed the phone himself and said, Merry Christmas, Sharon, I don't want your money anymore, but don't stop sending me your notes. And I got off a couple years light in the money department, but what happened was the little uh, Christmas elves cut the chips off my shoulder, and I got to look at my dad eyeball to eyeball, guilt-free for a lot of years, a lot of years, and uh, good stuff. Good stuff. So I was digging through some pictures the other day, and I found a wedding photo of those throwaway cameras, and somebody had given me some photos, and I didn't even know this one existed. And it's at the end of my wedding day, and my chin is on my hands, and my wedding garb is down my back, and my dad is right in front of me, and we're eyeball to eyeball. We're eyeball to eyeball. And um, precious picture, because we didn't do that for years. Couldn't even break bread at the same time. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous healed that. That sponsor wanted one more thing from me, and that healed. And, you know, I, had, I, I went through a messy divorce at 10. My sponsor smoked pot. I ended up at Clancy's door with my little baby and in a Prica stroller, 
something like, I don't know if you like me, I don't know if I like you, and I need a sponsor. And I came in and sat down in his living room by the fireplace, and he said, let's try. And we've been trying now for, I think, about 25 years. And um, 20 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he speaks 20. <laughs> Seems like 25. <laughs> And, you know, it's a, he picked the newcomer in the room, and it was really painful, and had this baby, and my car died. I had one of those 150,000-mile AA cars, you know, burning oil, and hadn't been working because I was a mom. And, and uh, my parents called me, and they said, uh, my dad said, we found this car. It has 7,000 miles on it, and um, we want you to have a car where your son feels, you know, where your son is safe in, in it with you, and so we're driving it out. And I didn't ask about the drug. I took cars from my dad. My dad would come home and cars would be gone. Never. <laughs> and they're calling me up and driving a car out from Iowa and leaving it with me. And it got stolen, but never to be seen again. But um, had deer whistles on it. I always think that someday I'm going to be in Mexico in a taxi and see this Ford that's painted yellow with deer whistles. And I know that's the car. I'll but we painted, we painted my house, and we got a new mattress, and um, they just showed up. They didn't say, how are you feeling? We're sorry that this happened. They just showed up and did. They just showed up and they did. And um, that's where I come from. So it was just, um, it was a hard year, and Clancy walked me through it. And the night I was walking over with my two hot cups of coffee to see how happy they were, him and her, the ex-husband and the new pregnant wife, and... Um, he happened to be at Saturday night. He's always gone, but he happened to be there. He saw where I was going. He took the coffee out of my hands, and he squared me off. And he squared me off by my shoulders so that he would look me in the eyes. And he said, Sharon, you'll walk through this with dignity and grace. And if he would have stopped there, I would have said, I want revenge. I don't care about <laughs> dignity and grace. But he added the words louder than my head so you can be an example to others. God, I did not want to hear him. <laughs> not. And so I put the coffee down. We didn't do it. And I gave, actually, I, I think I gave you the keys to my ex-husband's car because I had an extra set. And I was going to just kind of drive it on the beach at low tide. <laughs> I was planning a few things. And um, I think I gave up those keys that night, too. And I started writing my inventory, worrying about me getting active in Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsoring women. They were just clamoring to come to me, all the really sick ones with eyes spinning. And, and we got going again, and uh, it felt good. And uh, I told you last night that my son would go to their house and to see his little half-brother and want to go play with him, and it was hard. And, and I bit my tongue, and I said, not, I did not say not nice things about her. I would just, you know, nod or say nothing. And Jill and I got to be good friends because of the kids. Because of the kids, we showed up for each other and did things together. And, you know, when he left her for someone else, she told me she could walk through it with dignity and grace because she had watched me. So you never know. You absolutely never know. And Jill and I, every, every year she gives me a cake at my women's meeting because we are good, good, good friends. And we are still here for the kids when he is not. He hasn't been for a long time. And we are still here for the kids. And the kids grew up in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my kid's great. He's about love and compassion. I mean, he'll get on the phone with somebody and talk to them if I'm not home. You know, and they feel better after they talk to him. And he's a leader in his little group. And so I'm so glad that he's got some of that in him because he's leading a lot of his friends into life. They come to him, and it's a good thing. And, 
You know, I, my dad was killed six years ago, and it was really, really rough. And it was rough on my mom, and it was rough on the community, and it was rough on the family. And I went out on a spring day just to clear his land a little bit, had gone back to his roots, and um, the tractor went over on him, and he was gone and never showed back up. And, and my mom, um, you know, my mom has such amazing faith and amazing um, strength within her. And, and Alcoholics Anonymous, they were already there when I got off the plane, and and I, and I was always touched when I went to the church and I saw some flowers from Dick and Peggy and, um, and a lot of other people. And, you know, that night that, at the wake, you know, it was this wake for my dad and my dad's check and I played the accordion growing up and it wasn't cool then and it wasn't co- it's not cool now. I still have one, but I still did it for my dad, you know, and he has this Heligonka accordion. I have this picture of this beautiful Czechoslovakian mother of pearl accordion with buttons. I had like... The Titano that had the piano keys. So I kind of, and I am all day, the, da, the day of my dad's wake, in this side room trying to learn to play Amazing Grace on this button thing. And I've got this poor baby from Iowa in there with me. She's taking a lot of coffee breaks. And then, you know, she'd come back and go, How's it sound now? And she said, It's, it's sounding good, you know? And, <laughs> you know, and so we get there that night, and my son's going to say something about his grandpa because I sent him home every year to know his grandparents to Iowa. Sent him, the LA kid home to Iowa to know his roots. And uh, that was part of my amends. And, uh, you know, everybody's going through the line, and for some reason, I'm self obsessed now. I'm thinking about me, and my sponsor's back in LA, and he hadn't been. He was in somewhere like in Africa when I when this happened and so he was back in LA and I, I went to the rectory and I called Clancy at the mission because it was still mission time in LA and he didn't pick up I'm on hold while well, I hang up and now I'm getting mad I call back and I told the guy that I said tell him he's got 60 seconds <laughs> I'm a little self-obsessed a little self-obsessed you know it's my dad's wake and I'm thinking about me and uh, he gets on at 48, because I'm counting. And, <laughs> and he says, you know, he knew about my dad, and we talked for a while, and he was so sorry. And, um, you know, and he, he told me some things. And I told him, I said, and, and I'm whining about it. I have to play this accordion number, and I don't think I'm going to do it very well. And I'm really, I'm scared, and I'm nervous, and I think I'm going to cry. I don't think I can say anything, and it's all about me. You know, my dad's laying up there, and it's all about me. And... And this is why I love my sponsor being louder than my head because he, he, he got in there and he helped me out because what he said to me, he said, Sharon, you're going to do a beautiful job. There will not be a dry eye in that church. And I want you to look around that church after you're done playing and look at for the people that are really sobbing because those are the musicians. <laughs> brilliance on his part because it, it made me mad enough to snap back into reality and, and of course it turned out great and all the grandkids got up and sang with me when I missed a note and we all you know it was it was a wonderful thing but that's because I was there then for my mom and my mom just came out for my 30th birthday and and uh, you know, Casey and I have been together 18 years and we haven't lived together because I've just been I've been raising my son going to AA and I'm so touched that um, on the day of my, the weekend of my 30th birthday with my mother there, he asked me to marry him. And, um, finally. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, he reset his mother's wedding ring, and, and uh, I've got the wedding ring. We're not married yet, but we're working on it. And, um, and uh, you know, we put ourselves, uh, the household together six months ago, and um, um, my son is there, and, and uh, my sweetie is there, and uh, we have an AA household, and... 
you know, we do have to work through traditions in our house, and we do have to act better than we feel, and we're a team, and it feels good, and AA is alive and well in that house. Alive and well in that house. And you've taught me that. You've taught me to open my heart and open my home. And my dad, um, my dad went um, too fast. I think I had a lot more years to be with him. But I was speaking a few years ago up in Westlake, and this girl came up to me after I talked about my dad 12-stepping the town drunk who came to him. And he said, my daughter's an AA, or you should go. It'll help you. You're an alcoholic. And this girl came up to me afterwards and said, what, that, what is that man's name? And I told her, and, and she said, that's my uncle, and he's still sober. Now, my dad had been dead a couple of years. She said, that's my uncle, and he's still sober. And I went home for a family reunion, and he, that uncle 12-stepped me, and now I have two years. And it was a joy to see that circle close. It was a joy to see the, the long arm of Alcoholics Anonymous, the language of the heart, it never ends. I used to think freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> Freedom is, is being in a room like this with the love and the enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous. Freedom is lighting up my logs. Freedom is allowing the God in me to reach out and touch the God in you. Freedom is Alcoholics Anonymous and everything that it means. Everything that it means. So if you're sitting here and you need a log, light it up. Take it home. Thank you.